space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise, its continuing mission. To explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. Now then, now then, welcome to the latest edition of Odin Meets. My guest for this episode is Jeff Cruzy, an investor with one of Europe's leading space tech specialist VCs, Seraphim Capital. We discuss Jeff's background and experience and then dive into his investment thesis. What's so exciting about space? Why is there so much hype around it right now? And where are the opportunities? We also touch on themes of innovation more generally and the role that both the state and corporations have to play in the process of disruptive innovation. Feel free to hit me up on Twitter at joinodin with any thoughts, suggestions, or ideas. Jeff, welcome. Thanks for thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Maybe it'd be nice to, to start by just sort of introducing yourself. Tell us a bit about yourself, where you're from. Um, sure. Yeah, I'm currently based in London, but I'm sure you can tell from the accent that I'm not from here. Um, I was born and raised in San Diego, California. I uh, grew up surfing every morning, and uh, yeah, very Southern California lifestyle uh, as a young man, but I um, went to school on the East Coast, studied business, and uh, was in banking right out of school, um, but decided pretty early on that um, I wasn't super excited about that profession. I wanted to go help um, create value, as well as um, put some of my core values to practice, um, which at you know, are some of them are around conservation and environmentalism, and after which um, I went down to Brazil for a while uh, to go help open up the solar market down there. Um, oh wow! Helping the federal government figure out um, ways to put together bidding systems for utility scale projects versus um, you know the, the one or two panels they had installed at that point in time for for research projects. Interesting. Um, yeah, it was, it, it was a really uh, I mean, it was it was a very foreign place to me at the time. I didn't really honestly know much about Brazil other than you know how their grid worked um, and and what their you know electricity um, fleet uh, generation fleet looked like. Uh, so that, yeah, I learned a lot while I was down there. Did you pick up some Portuguese? A little bit. I, I mean, I <laughs> honestly haven't spoken any in years now. So uh, where did you live? Uh, Sao Paulo. Right, right, right. Was it was it a fun place to live? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I I mean, I think I mean just every every turn around every corner was something new for me. Um, mm-hmm. Not only the language and culture, but you know, food, music, um, the way they do business, um, mm-hmm. understanding, um, you know, just sort of the history of the country, which is actually kind of important to understanding how to to maneuver um, business wise. Um, and why people um, acted the way they did. So, um, yeah, it, it was it was really a lot of fun. I, I enjoyed it. Wouldn't trade it for anything. Um, but uh, I eventually decided to come back to the United States after a short stint um, and do some technical training. Um, again, focusing on semiconductors. Um, and I joined a company working on micro LED micro displays for augmented and virtual reality. Uh, we're working on core technology. Um, as well as um, productizing that, that core tech, 
building things like light field displays. Um, so that, that kind of took me even further down the rabbit hole into fields um, like, you know, designing optics and real-time graphics rendering and mm. um, a bunch of different stuff. But sort of early on in the, 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 the AR, VR days. Right, right, um, right. Are you, yeah, an so, are you an engineer by training then? You, you um, oh, I, I did do some technical training at the University of Michigan right. um, after I came back from um, Brazil. So, um, but I don't, I can't claim that I have a degree or anything. Um, right. I, I worked with some of the, the professors and doing some training um, that I had, um, you know, leaned on while I was at the, the venture capital fund. Um, so, were you, some... were you building stuff in the in the in the in the, the semiconductor and VR space then, or were you on the? Yeah, so I was actually um, building uh, gallium nitride and silicon wafers. Um, that were basically the, the the monolithic structure for for the display itself. Right. Wow. Uh, <laughs> How does one so, randomly start doing gallium nitride and lithium wafers? Uh, I'm sorry. I, I say lithium, gallium nitride, and silicon wafers. Silicon. Um, sorry, yeah. yeah. So, um, well, it, it so it, it was actually born out of an investment that I did did while I was at the, the venture capital fund. Um, so. I was finding it difficult to, to seek out companies that were sort of, you know, what I thought were good investments at that point in time. Um, and I had come across this company out of MIT that was working on this stuff called Quantum Dots. And it's a semiconductor material that they use to shift, um, to shift like the wavelengths of light um, to specifically engineered um, bands. Right. And so, um, it was in one of the main applications there was display technology. Um, and so it actually, uh, the company is called QD Vision and is now the Q in all the Samsung QLED um, oh, wow. TVs. Yeah. So they've done quite well then uh, eventually, have they? Yeah, yeah, they did all right. Um, I mean, you can, you can find their technology in, in, in you know, a lot of the Samsung TVs nowadays, which is pretty fun to see mm. it you know, in the wild. Um, but you know, also growing up a, a pretty avid gamer, I think it was just sort of a natural intersection of personal interests, um, mm. moving sort of towards the, the AR VR hardware side of things. Um, so yeah, I uh, I was at that company for a while. Companies called Ostendo Technologies um, before you know it, was, it became a pretty large company at one point. I think there were almost 250 people there, and I you know I, I like small nimble teams, so I decided to join another startup. Um, I tried my hand at machine learning. Um, working on uh, natural language processing for ad tech, which um, there were sort of two bad choices on my end, which were, um, I couldn't tell you, I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not an expert in machine learning or software development, um, but also um, ad tech uh, was something of a bloodbath back in 2012 because um, I mean, it's just now dominated by Facebook and Google. And so anybody, almost everybody in that field was, was you know, lost out. So um, that didn't last too long. That was only a couple of years in, in, in that field um, before I went back to, to ARVR again. Um, and I co-founded a company called DeepSea where we're working on verifocal optics and computer vision. Um, what is verifocal optics? Um, it's kind of like if you think about how we have cameras and we move a lens back and forth to pull focus at different depths. We were doing something similar, but for a display. And so um, 
where your focal depth is fixed with headsets today. Um, it gives people eye strain, nausea, um, and motion sickness um, by giving them the proper focal depth um, based on you know reading their 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 pupils. Um, we could adjust it and make it a more comfortable and realistic scene for people wearing those headsets. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. So. Um, How did that go? Yeah, I mean, we were basically an aqua hire. Um, again, it wasn't like the best field to be in. Um, hardware's, you know, strike one, strike two was we were in the valley of death of like AR, VR at that point in time. Right. And so, um, and it was sort of apparent to me then that Facebook was really dominating the landscape. Um, despite, you know, HTC's best efforts, it was just, it was, Facebook was pouring so much money, gobbling up all the talent. Um, and just pulling the lead on, on a lot of um, technological fronts. So um, ended up selling the company to, to one of the, the big tech companies out on the West Coast. Um, and um, that's when, you know, I just decided to sort of pay attention to my personal interests again. Um, I had mentored a few startups on, on the space tech side, working on on-orbit manufacturing and another one working on propulsion technology. Um, and that just seemed to sort of captivate me at that point in time. So um, I had met up with some executives at a company called Viasat in San Diego, which is more traditional satellite communications company. Um, and uh, I, I sort of finagled my way into a strategy position there where I helped them out on M&A, uh, investments, and then more broadly corporate strategy across a few different departments there right. on, on defense and commercial side. Nice, nice. So it was a bit, a bit, a bit more chilled in terms of uh, work-life balance and, and that sort of thing, was it? Um, I mean, it, yeah. I mean, I, I think that's probably fair. It's you know, it's a big corporate. Um, it's it's not as quick moving as as most of the startups I've been working at. Um, but it was funny because um, while I was there, uh, I I sort of rekindled a, a friendship with somebody I'd met while I was on the ARVR side. Um, and he, uh, he was one of the founders of Keyhole, which became Google Earth. And this gentleman, Michael Jones, um, who um, sadly passed away recently, um, was a chief technology advocate at, at Google for more than a decade. Um, wow. Shared a desk with Eric Schmidt. Um, so a uh, pretty visible individual. But um, he and many of his former teammates from Keyhole um, – still at Google, um, decided to spin out, and they spun out a company called Niantic, which is makers of Pokemon Go. Mm. Um, doesn't sound very related, um, but it, it actually, um, it, it, in a weird way, it is. It's, I mean, it's all geospatial technology, right. whether it's, right. um, you know, satellite imagery or, you know, taking images, you know, just in front of you, you still need to be able to position them accurately. Yes. So, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. GPS playing a big role in that. Um, but anyways... Um, sort of rekindled a conversation with him because um, he had sort of straddled AR, VR um, when I talked to him, but also um, space tech at that time, and he was a partner at Seraphim. And so um, right, okay. when, I, when I moved out here, um, you know, linked up with him, and I mean, I think my timing was also pretty lucky in that they, were, they had an open role. So I joined Seraphim at the beginning of 2020. Okay, exciting. So it's fa fairly new for you. And is your move to the to the UK relatively recent then as well? Um, so moved to the UK at the end of 2019. Uh, my wife, she's from Woking, 
um, just outside of London. So it's a bit of a homecoming for her. Nice, nice, nice. Um, so she was happy to, to get back to the UK. How, how have you found settling in with the, the culture here? I, I mean, it's, it, people are really nice and it's pretty chill here. Like, I, I, it, it's, it's sort of funny. I, I gained a little bit of perspective on the US having lived here through COVID and, and, and watching the news and what's going on over there um, over the last year. Um, so um, I, I, I really enjoy it here. I think it's you know it's definitely my home now. Mm, interesting. What's what's the main thing that you think is 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 different, or what different perspective has it given you on the U.S.? Um. Well, I, I think I, I I think growing up in the U.S. and only having spent a little bit of time outside the U.S. Um, you know, you, you unknowingly develop this idea that you know everything revolves around. The U.S. or that the U.S. is so so important, um, which granted it's an important country, but it's not everything. And there's a lot of important things happening outside the U.S. Mm. Um, and I, I think that was the biggest eye opener for me. Um, and it's hard. It's it sounds so simplistic and silly, but it's you. It's hard to uh, to know it until you've really spent considerable amount of time outside the U.S. Right. Um, you can intellectualize it all you want, but to know it's different right when you actually feel it and experience sort of a different culture and a different environment then it's uh, it's eye-opening isn't it i guess it's the same for people here as well if you don't get the chance to travel and live somewhere else you don't necessarily um experience that but people you know people can more and more which i think is good let's talk let's talk a bit a bit about space so it sounds like you 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 started your career in in the investment world, um, you know, banking, and then what's really interesting is you've spent a lot of time in venture and then as an operator in in building physical things, which I think is interesting and quite different from a lot of people in the tech world who you know spend time building software essentially. So so you've been at Seraphim now for for about a year and a half. Um, have you have you had a chance to make any investments yourself? Um, so, I mean, I, I would say that we as a team at Seraphim have made a number of investments. We kind of all team up on right. like, each investment that we do. Um, so I, I think, you know, since I've been there, we've done, I mean, I think it's nine investments and then like five or six new ones. Um, so it's, it's been, it's really been sort of record pace for not only Seraphim, but, you know, as benchmark against the rest of VC, it's been it's been a quick one. Mm. Um, mm. So, um, and you yeah, mentioned this earlier when we were chatting. You feel like there's quite a lot of momentum in the in the space tech area specifically at the moment. Yeah, I think you know for a number of reasons, um, and, and you know, like we, we we chatted about earlier, I think you know there's uh, definitely the SpaceX SpaceX effect. Um, you know more and more interest um, from people outside the traditional aerospace industry. Um, potentially a lot of people feeling like they missed out on investing in SpaceX, which has right. um, got a massive valuation at this point. Um, so they're, they're looking at other space companies, um, you know, seeing SpaceX as sort of the catalyst for a lot of that, um, which I, I think is you know, a totally valid approach. Um, so you're seeing more and more uh, generalist investors sort of bridge the gap to space tech now. Um, but we're also seeing um, a lot 
in terms of uh, space companies going public as well via SPAC, which is um, sort of re reaching epic proportions right now. I think mm -hmm. some might argue that it's top of the market behavior. Um, some people might argue that you know it's just better aligned with the capital needs for a lot of the companies that are, mm -hmm. that are, that are choosing to go this route. Um, argue either way um, but I think it's uh, particularly manic for space tech right now um, for some of those reasons um, we're seeing uh, I, can't, I mean I can't even count I think it's like since the beginning in, or the end of last year it's maybe 10 um, announced SPACs and then many many more that um, have filed um, with the intention of Acquiring a space company of some of some effect. Mm. You compared it earlier when we spoke to sort of the two thousand and seven two thousand and eight clean tech period and the and the boom in funding that was happening there, right? Yeah. So I think um, you know we, we kind of we, we I think we started off by comparing it to, to the the uh, dot com bubble. Dot com bubble. That's right. Um, and and I, I I don't know if that's the most fair comparison because. I do think, um, despite there being some mania around space tech, um, that there'll be a lot of companies that, that come out of it that, that will be around for a long time. And so I, I think I found a similar pattern in clean tech um, back in 2008 where, yeah, there was, there was a lot of money, um, frothy investment, um, and uh, there, despite that and you know, the eventual shakeout of a lot of companies, there were a lot of companies that are significantly large and still around today that contribute massively um, in, in very meaningful ways. Um, I think funniest part of it all is, you know, there's a, sort of the usual suspect of Elon Musk, um, you know, and Tesla. That's 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 where when Tesla was born out of. So this guy knows um, how to ride a bubble, <laughs> right? He's <laughs> good at what he does. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's true, isn't it? And it's the other thing we were discussing is is just part of being a great founder seems to be being very good at fundraising, and it can't be underestimated. You know that ability to be a great salesman, take people on that journey. You know, have that big vision, and for people to buy into that and to buy into you. Absolutely, and I think it's ever so more important for sort of like the deep tech category, mm -hmm. um, where you know it, it's oftentimes technology that's you know further out. So. Being able to convey that big vision, that that go to Mars vision, um, is how I always refer to it, mm. um, is is you know ultimately the value that people are investing in, and so that that they have to buy into that narrative, um, and so uh, I think it's especially um, important for for deep tech entrepreneurs to to be able to have that skill. Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Especially you know the time to to market and the time to revenue is so long. And then even once you reach revenue, it's the time to profitability. You know, we're talking 10, 15, maybe 20 year time horizons for this stuff. I'm reminded as well of, you know, Jeff Bezos always talks about, um, and it was something someone mentioned in a newsletter I read recently. Um, Jeff Bezos always talks about training his investors to be patient and, and sort of saying to them, you know, we need to think very long term. Um, and, you know, the guys at Stripe talk about it as well. It's that ability to stay fixated very much on the long-term vision and for that to be sort of a competitive advantage in some ways as well um, because you're taking people on a journey. And, you know, when you're still here and people are saying, oh, well, what about, you know, 
why aren't sales doing well, et cetera, et cetera. You can sort of say, look, you know, that's fine, but we're this much further on our journey to, to Mars or, or whatever it is to, to use the analogy you did. Yeah. I, I, and I think also um, just, I, I, I think you mentioned this focus, um, staying focused for, for a lot of startups uh, is, is more difficult than you'd think because, you know, oftentimes they're cash starved. They need, they need to bring in some money to keep the lights on and they'll start taking um, projects and demos and pilots that are sort of off, off, off market, off the plan a bit. Mm. Um, and all of a sudden, before they know it, you know, they're, they're, they're building and spending time on something that's unrelated to what their original goal was. Um, and for short, for short-term gains, basically. For short-term gains, exactly. Right. Yeah, he's just, as, as nailed it there. It's time horizon as a competitive advantage, I think. I think it was in um, the European Straits newsletter. I think Nicola mentioned it. Um, cool. So maybe it'd be interesting to talk about your, your sort of thesis on, on space and where we are right now. Maybe we can break it down into a few specific subsectors. You know, you talked about launch companies earlier. I guess there's also stuff happening in, in other areas. Yeah. So um, my, my personal thesis around space was, um, you know, it came in a few different forms, but it was actually, so if we look back in history, uh, a lot of the innovation that we have was born out of investment during sort of like wartime. Um, I, I think you know, there's, there's a book uh, called, I think it's called Creative Capital about George Durow, um, who's sort of the original venture capitalist. That's mm -hmm. a lot, a lot of people like to think, um, who exemplified, you know, sort of the, the government investment and in a lot of R&D research that's eventually spun out as companies um, that were profitable and, you know, people could invest in, in, in the growth of. Um, and so I, I kind of see that happening again, and I hate to admit it, but, like, in, we're, we're, we're sort of in another Cold War right now um, on the space side uh, specifically um, in many other aspects as well, but with specific regard to space, um, you know, China is emerging as, as one of, the, you know, the leaders right now. And, and so there's a bit of a space race between, you know, the West and, and China. Um, and, and as a result, I, I kind of anticipated, you know, federal government spending a lot more money, time and attention on um, space, not only commercially, but also on, on the military side. So massive amounts of federal dollars flowing in that direction. Right. Um, and so that, that, was, that was part of it. Um, the other part of it was, I, I think that, there are economies that can be created out of space that we just haven't really explored yet, and we can't even begin to think about them until we've taken that incremental step about, you know, getting, you know, cheaper and more frequent access mm. to space. And, and we're and that's just starting. I think people like to like to think that, you know, we're already there, but actually, I think it's in the next, you know, couple of years we're going to launch more satellites than we've launched in, in the history of. You know, human existence. Really? Yeah. So, so it's sort of so that's interesting. So, y y you think there's an opportunity to ride the political wave, which is interested in space now and is going to put more money behind it. I think it'd be interesting to touch upon that and on the point around the extent to which the state should be involved in in R and D, maybe more heavily, especially with the more radical innovation. You know, when it's early on, when there's more risk, it's not it's not so attractive to VCs often at that stage, right? They're more interested in the deployment phase of the technology when 
it's, it's proven and it's about finding markets for existing innovation, right? That's what, you know, something that um, people talk about a lot. And then I, I think the other thing that um, you've touched on that's interesting there is we're still in this period with space where it's about building out the base infrastructure on top of which um, new ecosystems, new economies emerge. And it's interesting. It's something the guys mentioned before, you know, it's sort of people are trying things at the moment in space, like developing new materials that you can't develop on earth, you know, innovative foams and stuff like that. Um, but it's definitely early days for that sort of stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so right now, I guess we're more in the phase of how do we efficiently get stuff into space? Um, and then what's the base infrastructure that's needed to, I think that's exactly right. Uh, we're, we're, we're building that, that infrastructure layer right now. And then people will start, and, and are currently moving downstream in, in terms of building out applications and, and productizing what's available to them, um, you know, oftentimes from satellites observing Earth um, with different kinds of imagery or generating different kinds of data from, you know, measuring, you know, signals from ships and planes and cars mm. or generating um, highly accurate positioning data um, for phones and autonomous vehicles. Right. Um, so yeah, I, th I think that's absolutely right. We're, we're definitely in that infrastructure layer right now. Right. And is a lot of it still quite earth facing? Because that's the other thing I think the guys mentioned is there's there's you have terminology for this within the industry. I, I understand, right? Whether it's it's if if it's focused on yeah. Sorry, I'll let you speak. I think you. Understand. Oh no 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 yeah no no I I think that's that, that's accurate. Uh, you know they call it earth observation. Right. Um, so satellites pointing back at Earth, measuring right. something. Right. Um, and then, you know, I think with government spending money to for moon missions now, we could begin to see the development of what they call the cis lunar economy, where, right. you know, it's it's beyond Earth now. Um, and I, I don't know that before government stepping in to fund those sorts of missions, we would have been able to do that commercially. So I think there's a really important role for governments to play in, in progressing technology and economies. Mm, mm. It's interesting. I, I um, often point back to Dominic Cummings' blog. Often he's, he's this like very divisive character in British politics, obviously. And, um, you know, I don't think he does himself any favors in, in, in popularity contests, but he writes really interesting stuff. He's always talking about the need for government to be more involved in the early stages of research, the need for a DARPA style organization in in the UK, and I saw someone else has shared a post on that recently that I need to, to read into. But yeah, it, it definitely feels like there's so much more we could be doing there. And I listened to this interesting conversation between um, David Graeber and Peter Thiel, where they're talking about the stagnation of innovation since the 60s, right? Because before that, there was this big vision of going to the moon. And if you read the sci-fi from those periods, you know, they're talking about um, being on Mars and having colonies on Mars and all that sort of stuff in the early 21st century. And it felt like they were already on that trajectory. And then at some point, um, the state became increasingly bureaucratic and less focused on, you know, um, technology and innovation and more on... and. David Graeber also described it, I think, as sort of like the financialization and the managerialization of the economy, right? Turning everything into a spreadsheet where it's like, okay, what's the PL here? And 
moving away from product and grand visions for, for what can be built. And, you know, we sort of know the blueprint for this radical innovation. It's like take really smart people, put them in a room together, throw some money at them and leave them alone. <laughs> and, you know, nine times out of 10, nothing is going to happen. But then sometimes something that surprises even them will happen and they'll produce the internet, right? Or, mm -hmm. you know, the silicon um, transistor or whatever it is. Um, well, I, I think you hit the nail on the head there. And um, that, yeah, William Shockley and an invention of the transistor is exactly what I was thinking of. Mm. Where, um, I mean, he was at Bell Labs on the East Coast of the United States, mm -hmm. ended up leaving, um, heading for Silicon Valley. Part of the story is that, you know, he was just sort of an insufferable individual and nobody wanted to work with him. Mm. And Stanford was willing to recognize his genius and go out and find government funding for him to continue whatever research he wanted because they they knew that, you know, it's it's oftentimes the, the innovation you can't anticipate, which has the largest impact there. And people refer to black swan events. Yes, um, yeah, yeah. And so um, I, I think that's absolutely right. Um, and I, I think Peter Thiel is, 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 you know, accurate in describing that sort of in a different way. But yeah, yeah. I think without that sort of open research and exploratory setting, uh, then we sort of bind ourselves to outcomes and it becomes a bit more deterministic than, than, than it really actually should be. Um, people yeah. need to be able to freely explore innovation. And then I think we also touched on um, sort of the cross-pollination of disciplines and, and yeah. that, that, that random interaction um, that, that you know, contributes significantly to that effect. Yes, and, yeah. The Medici effect, as, as it's called in that book, right? Um, sort of how do you how do you get you know not just um, you know aeronautical engineers in a room, but also you know some some you know people from a, a biology background or a chemistry background or whatever it is, or you know art or whatever, and, and what starts to happen when when those people interact? I think you know Peter Thiel's opinion on it, from my understanding, is is sort of like well we can't wait for the state to catch up <laughs> and realize that this is the case. And we just need to get on with it and find small numbers of individuals who do want to do this sort of stuff and back them with essentially venture funding. And mm -hmm. that does seem to be happening, right? There's so much more venture interest in deep tech. It, there's a lot of um, debate about whether or not that's a good way to invest, you know, based on stages of innovation frameworks and, you know, uh, and, and that sort of stuff. What's, what's your view on that? Like, um, the risk reward or risk return ratio of these sorts of in investments? Um, well, I, I think the framework that I kind of put it in is there are sort of these like cycles that we go through technologically. Mm. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, at one point everyone was saying software is going to eat the world. Sure. You know, we get computers that can actually help us do that first. And so there's this effect where you know, hardware begets applications and, and back and forth. Um, and then, you know, just sort of it spirals. And so, um, you know, I think the last time we, or not maybe the last time, but, you know, one of the one of the, the big obvious ones is when we went from, you know, the hard keyboard on a BlackBerry and, you know, the very early days of a smartphone to um, the explosion of, of them um, with the invention of the iPhone. What big difference mm -hmm. there was, you know, we had touch screens, mm. um, so it became intuitively inter interactive. Um, 
and we had, you know, better cameras, and then we had LiDAR, and we had, you know, um, all these different pieces of hardware that enabled new applications. Um, and so I think that, that's kind of how I think about it. So I think you have to sort of time it right um, in some sense of when you're investing in the deep tech versus when you're investing in the application side of it. You know, I think, you know, if I, if I was to, to take a guess at, you know, at, you know, investing in SaaS companies, I think it's probably really competitive, um, very cutthroat. And I think there's a lot of people doing it. Um, and, you know, there's, there's lots of KPIs and ways to measure it. And, and, um, and so I, I think, you know, that's probably not an area that I would personally want to go try and compete mm -hmm. in. Um, and that's, I mean, probably what, part of what drove me more towards deep tech. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really interesting point. It's a little bit like, um, you know, the, the, the name that always comes up in these conversations is Carlotta Perez. I don't know if you've ever looked at, um, she's got this, this sort of grand, she's an economist, um, but has this sort of grand theory of, you know, big technological innovations happening every 50 to 70 years. So the silicon transistor was the last one in the early 70s. You know, before that, it was mass production and, um, you know, production lines and that leading to the, the consumer goods boom of the, of the early 20th century, um, you know, embodied by the likes of Ford. Um, and then I think you can go back before that. There's like the steam train, you know, steel milling and the early industrial revolution in, in Britain. Um, and it feels like, okay, if the silicon transistor happened, you know, 50 years ago now, we're, we're, we're getting towards, you know, the back end of that. Um, I actually, you know, sort of tweeted about this and, and said, maybe it's biotech the next wave, right? Because it builds on what's come before. Um, a, a lot of people are of the opinion that, the financial crises we've had recently and the quantitative easing means that we've sort of dragged out the early stage of, of um, th this development cycle because there's just more money for speculative financing by a venture. But it feels like, you know, the next layer, especially with software, is you enter this sort of golden age where there's a realignment of what founders want, which is basically money without dilution. And what investors want, which is like lower risk returns, right? And then mm -hmm. in software, it feels like we're getting to this stage now, right? So revenue-based financing is becoming more prominent. You know, you've got ClearBank raising lots of money, Stripe Capital, you look at what they're doing. Then you look in e-com or marketplaces, you know, Shopify can probably model your revenues pretty accurately and, and lend you money off the back of it now. So it feels like you're competing against all of that money now as well, right? And then... Mm -hmm. Once it's debt, it starts to look attractive to, you know, Goldman Sachs as well as as Anderson Horowitz, right? And then and then you're in tricky territory as a as as an investor, I think. So, you know, trying to figure out what that next new wave of innovation will be is is really interesting. And I think there's, it definitely seems like there's a few different candidates and and, and spaces in there. You know, biotech, um, you know, crypto blockchain, maybe I don't know. Yeah, I think I think. Um, space is sort of the beneficiary of all those other categories mm. in my mind. And so I, I don't know that, that space is the next paradigm shift, but mm. it, it will definitely benefit from it. Um, and, you know, so I can think of a few examples. You mentioned biotech. Um, I mean, there are going to have to be some serious advances in biotech for people to be able to travel any significant time in space. Mm. Um, but also uh, one that sort of keeps me up at night is, is quantum computing and, and mm -hmm. quantum security. Um, that that's I mean that's 
something that's going to change relatively overnight. And um, I mean, we could be caught exposed um, very quickly. Um, so I think in my mind, that's, that's one of the main areas I, I see a lot of people racing towards. Um, but then also, um, you know, perhaps we'll eventually figure out what the new personal computing paradigm is. We'll get rid of, you know, screens and replace mm -hmm. them with the pair of glasses. Mm. Um, I think, you know, there, there's quite a few candidates, but um, in, in my mind, personally, I think quantum computing is, is the big one and quantum security are the big ones. Mm. Um, because, you know, with the proliferation of, you know, machine learning models and that computing power, it's, right. there's going to be a lot of interesting things we can do that right. we just are not able right. to right now. Right. I think that's an interesting point because it's always about it being built on the previous paradigm. And then it's usually about a specific invention, right? So you, you're right, like quantum computing, if they can really nail that and make these things stable at scale, which I understand is sort of the problem with them at the moment, right? Then it's going to unlock <coughs> serious amounts of compute that, that make traditional computers look pretty pretty basic right um interesting let's let's we've got a couple of questions so Heath was asking um how do you assess as an investment case spin-offs from well-known space systems or aerospace companies in particular the challenge around team whether they come from the corporate or are brought in at your investor's request and two if the corporate wants to remain as an investor in the spin-off i think it's a really interesting one um, yeah and so we, we see quite a few of these. Um, so, I, I mean, I think there's a few things to unpack. Um, coming out of corporate, um, you know, there's always consideration around what exactly that relationship looks like. Um, sometimes I've seen overly punitive licensing agreements that, that stymie any kind of business case before it gets off the ground. Mm. Um, so we, we always pay a lot of attention to, like, what is the exact nature of that relationship? Um, and then, you know, are these people still beholden somehow to, to the parent company? Are they spending inordinate amount of time, inordinate amounts of time um, that you know other startups would not be spending with the parent? Um, you know, just reporting back to them, for example. I've mm. seen that quite often. Um, but then again, there's also the you know the the hope that the the team is more focused around scaling the startup. And oftentimes that's just a fundamentally different skill set than you that you don't really get much of at a large corporate. Um, there's just you know different mindsets and motives. Um, not saying it's impossible. We've seen lots of great um, corporate teams convert over to startups and scale very quickly. Um, so it, it's it's really sort of a case by case basis in, in that situation. Mm -hmm. um, and then um, and then you know in, as remaining as investors. I don't think that's a bad thing. Um, oftentimes, they're able to provide um, support that you know a VC might not, um, and and resources a VC might not. Um, and so um, we've seen that quite often. I actually invested in well, an unsuccessful solar company at one point, um, but one of one of the backers um, was Intel, um, and and they were able to you know draw on their very rich talent pool to help this company through. Um, so um, I, I don't like to discount corporates participating in, in mm. adventuring as much as I think a lot of other VCs might. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a good, uh, 
interview with Fred Wilson where he's just absolutely roasting corporate venture and being, <laughs> being like, is they've got no business investing. You know, oh, just... I mean, I mean that, that's a totally different topic on its own. <laughs> I mean, I mean, and, and I don't know that they don't have any business investing. It's just, you know, it, it's, it's usually put in the wrong framework. And for example, almost every single corporate venturing arm I've ever seen has some sort of shopping list for the parent company which is just the wrong way to venture altogether because then you're, you're optimizing for, you know, current needs rather than future needs and there's right. not growth. And yeah. Right. It's interesting. Like I, I spent a, sh a short period of time um, working with Coca-Cola European partners on, on their corporate venture. And um, what I found is that there's a big trade-off between strategic needs of the corporate mothership which do have to be considered right because that's the only way you're going to get money off the cfo <laughs> basically um and then also financial right because ultimately ventures is, is is a financial asset class that needs to be treated as such right it does, there's nothing strategic about invent investing in financially unsuccessful businesses because ultimately they're not going to help you meet your your strategic goals right and then I spend a lot of time speaking to people. And if, if you look at the people who've, who've been doing corporate venturing for a long time, so in media, there's like Hearst Ventures in Europe and um, Unilever Ventures in consumer goods are probably the, the longest in the tooth. Intel Capital have been in the game for a long time as well, you know, 20 plus years. They've gradually become more and more financial over time. Mm -hmm. And then there's like a tenuous strategic link, you know. So with Intel, it's sort of like, well, if Intel can help with your processors, then we're happy to, but ultimately we're making bets here and looking for one of them to be a strategic innovation that, you know, really, you know, lights our core business on, on fire at some point in future. That seems to be the, as things play out over time, you know, they sort of move from being like, um, we're going to find the next innovation for us to, we're just going to fund innovation and some of it might end up helping us, you know? Yeah, so I, I think like trying to predetermine what the innovation will be is sort of the, the pitfall there. Um, I mean, if any of us could, you know, predict what the next big innovation would be, I mean, we'd be fabulously wealthy by now. Mm. I don't know that there's many people on the face of the earth that are actually good at that. Mm. Um, so I think it's probably the wrong approach to, to VC. Mm. Um, and so similarly for corporate venturing, the, in, in my ideal world, the way I would like corporates to think about it is, let them act more autonomously, mm. um, give them more wiggle room to invest peripherally to whatever the, you know, the core technology or, or aim of the company is and look at it as more of a hedging room mm. of risk versus, mm. you know, seeking, um, you know, some specific goal for the company. And so, I mean, which would include, you know, I mean, would, wouldn't exclude, you know, the idea of you know, financial returns. I think you're absolutely right. That has to be core to that to that thesis. Right. Um, and 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 giving away that sort of um, oversight and providing that much autonomy to financial endeavor is just, I think, difficult for a lot of executive teams. Yeah. Well, you got to turn around and justify it to your shareholders, right? Who might be like pretty fierce activist investors in the public market who are difficult to work with at the best of times, I imagine. Yeah. Um, the, the, 
the other bit that's interesting there is like, okay, as a corporate, what stage do you do it at? So I saw Boeing are doing an accelerator at the moment and, you know, sort of taking, I think they're doing it with tech stars or someone and, you know, they sort of take sort of eight to 12 businesses, you know, give them exposure to their corporate teams and I guess their engineering departments and all that sort of stuff. I think it's focused on space and aeronautical, obviously. obviously. Um, and then it feels like there's something interesting, right? Because you're not investing lots of money financially um you're getting some exposure to innovation and you might be able to pick it up in future and you've built a good relationship with the founder at that early stage and sort of being their first yes um and if you can do that you know mm -hmm. usually for a founder once you're in a stronger position fundraising there's there's a loyalty element there and <clears throat> you go back to the people who, who who backed you at first um so yeah it's <laughs> it's it's interesting do you do you work yeah i kind of think of it on this continuum on on, on resources you know expended by startups versus the resources expended by the corporate that they might engage with and so all these different levels of engagement somewhere within within those two axes um you know on on sort of the lightest end there's like innovation labs or hackathons kind of things um which are great for um maybe exposing the corporate to you know new ideas and helping you know shift the culture a little bit more towards a, an innovation mindset yeah. um you know all the way through accelerators cvc corporate venture capital but also like procurement and then m&a on the you know on the stream end that's right it's so it's also like within the corporate why aren't they investing in r&d more right like you said the the semiconductor came out of bell labs i saw a really good thing on twitter the other day that was like um comparing a founder CEO to a MBA CEO, right? And it was Elon, and he's talking about product, 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 right? About their new battery technology. And then, you know, it's the CEO of, I don't know who it is, you know, Ford or, or you know, um, VW or someone. And he's like, you know, we need to increase our working capital and, um, you know, improve our margins and, you know, our, our, our contribution margin should should increase. But that doesn't mean we're not thinking about growth. You know, it was just all very financial. And it com mm -hmm. comes back to that same thing we discussed, right, which is like the financialization of everything that's happened over the last 50 years has stopped people thinking about product. And ultimately, you know, th there's this Peter Drucker quote where he's like, you know, um, Financial analysts think, you know, companies make money. They don't. They make shoes. <laughs> you know, so you're sort of saying, like, you know, focus on products, you know, and uh, that's, that's what people, that's what people care, should care more about. And that's what corporates should care more about as well, I guess. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I think it's also just like an awesome way to demotivate, you know, your entire team by focusing on, like you said, financial metrics versus the quality of the product. Um, so I, I think it's it's beyond just you know the value of the company, um, but I guess that that also is part of the value of the company is you know with the quality of your team. Um, so it, it, yeah, I think it pervades you know just absolutely every aspect of of a company. Mm -hmm. um, well, look, I'm conscious we've got a little bit of time left. It'd be interesting to hear sort of what stuff you're most excited about in in space tech in in Europe or the US. Any any companies that are on your uh, on your radar um and maybe if you want to plug anything or yeah know. sure <laughs> um so um i'll shamelessly plug a company that i'm on uh i'm a board observer for uh it's an italian company um that's uh called d orbit 
and they're working on sort of last mile orbit taxiing. So the idea being companies like SpaceX will launch deorbit into space. On deorbit will be a bunch of small satellites that don't have their own propulsion. Mm-hmm. So their vehicle will taxi these satellites to their proper orbit um, in sort of the last mile solution. Mm. Um, but what's more interesting than that to me is that that's just sort of the Trojan horse for the larger market down the road, which is um, you can run a lot of secondary missions off that vehicle that has now been launched and paid for in, in space. So mm. um, I think a, a big area that I think is interesting or will become increasingly more interesting are um, data centers in orbit. I think right. it's going it's going to be fascinating to see develop because we'll have just mountains of data being generated and downlinking all that raw data is probably not the most efficient use of the bandwidth that those right. satellites have. Right. Being able to pre-process some of it in orbit will be really helpful in terms of reducing the ultimate infrastructure cost for those companies. Um, so I would expect to see companies like AWS maybe or Microsoft actually putting data centers in orbit. Right. Wow. Brings a new meaning to the word cloud computing, right? <laughs> um, so I think, I think the orbit, you know, they're, they're ahead of the curve on that and, and they're really going to be an integral um, partner in, in making that happen. That's so exciting. It's interesting. Mark and Mark mentioned that the last time they were saying one of the problems at the moment is you, you throw all these CubeSats into space and then for each mission you've got, so they were both working at Open Cosmos before, they say for each mission, you've got like this tiny limited amount of fuel and you end up burning most of the fuel to get the satellite into its uh, position. And then you've got no fuel left for like positioning adjustments over the life cycle of that satellite, right? Which might be a couple of years. So now there's these businesses that are basically sort of like oil tankers almost, right? Who are like flying around, picking up the satellites and moving them around and, and stuff like that. Or like tugboats or something. Right? Yeah, That's yeah, exactly. Is. It's, it's fascinating. And it, um, it just further democratizes all that because now you don't have to design in propulsion really or yeah. as much propulsion as you would have had before. Right, 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 which reduces costs, I guess, as well. Yep. Um, I saw an interesting business yesterday um, who are... Uh, I can't remember what they're called. Dark, I think. Have you heard of them? Dark. So uh, they're a launch company, but as I understand it, they're using like surface-to-air missile technology or something like that, rather than going straight up, mm-hmm. trying to get stuff to the edge and then go off from there. I guess a little bit like what Branson was doing with their rocket company before. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But they're using it to launch satellites rather than, you know, passengers into space or whatever Virgin Galactic was. What's your view on, on the launch environment? You said it was quite busy. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I would personally characterize it as quite saturated. Mm. Um, there are a lot of companies trying to do launch and there's only a certain amount of demand. And I think, you know, there's at one point, I think it was last year, there were more launch companies than satellites or yeah, more planned or more launch companies than like planned satellite launches. Mm. Um, so there was mm. just clearly an outstripping of demand at that point. Right. Um, and and it, I think, you know, my, you know, sort of just instinct, I guess, says there'll be a shakeout. There'll be some level of um, maybe consolidation, maybe not. Um, but there'll, there'll be sort of a, a shakeout and there'll be far fewer launch companies just because there's not as diverse of a need as I think 
is being projected right now right. for launch. Where's the white space then in space? Where's the white space? Um, well, I think you know there is a lot that can be done in orbit. Um, that that sort of you know the new the new frontier. Um, meaning, the way we design satellites right now is we put them up, they do their job, and then we either just sort of let them die out in space and remain in orbit, or they eventually fall back, you know, and burn up in, in the atmosphere. Um, but they're sort of like one use right now. Uh, and mm. so I think in the future, you know, there'll be, you know, quite a business in you know, potentially recycling um, satellites, repairing them in orbit, um, refueling them in orbit, um, making them more useful for longer. So certain, not just like a throwaway um, aspect to it all. Um, so that also includes things that we're starting to see emerge now, like um, on-orbit manufacturing as well. So actually producing right. these parts in space. Right, right. So you can go around, pick up all the stuff that's out there, fix it, and then redeploy it essentially and keep it running. Yeah, absolutely. Or even you know, melt it down and make new parts out of it um, instead of having to try and deorbit it. Right. In space. In space. That's insane. <laughs> um, and um, predictions for, for space. When are we going to next land on the moon? When are we going to land on Mars? Any, any, uh... I, mean, I, th I think we got the moon in a couple of years now. Or not, even, like, not even. Really? Um, is there, is there's, a, there's a plan? There's a planned mission, is there? Yeah. I, I, I haven't even read the news on that. We're going back to the moon. All right, nice. Um, I could be wrong. I, I, I don't know. I, that, that's a little bit beyond me, only in that those are sort of government-led missions, and right. I'm more focused on the, on the commercial side. But yeah, I, I, don't, I think it's going to be incredible to see you know, you know, humans actually return to the surface of the moon. Mm. Um, Mars, I mean, I think that one's a bit further out. Um, mm. I think there's going to be a lot of innovation required to make that actually happen. Um, and, and return humans safely. Um, but, you know, I, I, I'm not going to sit here and say it's impossible because, um, you know, any honest venture capitalist will say it's not it's not our job to predict the future. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. See the present clearly, right? I, I couldn't agree more. Um, well, look, Jeff, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much for your time. And, um, yeah, the, the recording will be out in, in a couple of weeks. If you want to follow um, Jeff, we, we can follow you on Twitter, right? Yep. Um, what's your handle? Uh, at Jeff Cruzy. So at Jeff Cruzy, um, feel free to get in touch. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to introduce anyone by email as well um, with, with Jeff's permission. Um, and yeah, chat soon. Right. Take care, dude. Pleasure. Thank you Thanks so much. Patrick. See ya. See you guys. Bye-bye. Bye, everyone.